morning. Well, one way to get a raucous crowd not to be raucous anymore is to read that passage. <laughs> Amen? I mean, if you want to quiet a room in a hurry, that's how you do it. So um, John <laughs> called me called me a couple weeks ago and asked me if I, you know, wanted to preach and fill in. I said, you know, for sure, John, you know, I know how it is to teach regularly. It's hard work, and it's nice to have a little break in the action. And he shared the passage with me, and it just didn't even register what he was asking me to teach on. You know, this ranks right up with all those things you don't really want to talk about, right? Uh, I'm a Minnesota Viking fan, and so we don't like to talk about our Super Bowl record. So if you're not a Viking fan, please do not bring it up with me after church today, okay? So my name's Joel, Joel Swanson, and um, I've been here at Walnut Creek for 25 years, and I came because someone invited me. Did anybody come to Walnut Creek because you were invited? Amen. So don't stop inviting people, amen? Amen. <laughs> It's just good, and uh, it's just been a great blessing for my family. Here's my family. They're actually out there, too. This is the full family here. So we have, in my house, we have five girls. Actually, two of them no longer live in my house. They have husbands. And we have one boy, and then I have two son-in-laws. And my wife, Selena, we've been married for 28 years. Praise the Lord. So happily married anyway. So... Um, that's just a little bit about me. Um, I want to talk a little bit as we jump into this text about this text and why is it in the Bible? Because you kind of might be saying, like, why does God put this stuff in the Bible? And there is a reason. But I think the first thing we need to kind of settle out is the difference between a prescriptive text and a descriptive text, all right? So this text is what we call a descriptive text. But let me explain a prescriptive text. So a prescriptive text is like a prescription. If you've been to the doctor lately, right? The doctor makes a scribble that you can't read, right? And sends it to the pharmacy. And then you get your medication and it has the prescription. It says, take two pills in the morning and make sure you eat some food. If you don't eat some food, right, that might be part of the prescription. Or it might say, you know, take these pills for 10 days, right? Well, this, the Bible is the same way in that it's prescriptive, and it gives prescriptive things for us to do, like thou shall not steal. Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive one another. These are prescriptive things in the scripture. And guess what? They're so easy to interpret because they're very clear. But today's text is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. So these passages are often referred to as narrative or historical passages, and they simply tell you about an event or a series of events. So the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, that is descriptive. And it goes on for 40 years, right? Um, David killing Goliath in that encounter, that is a descriptive text. Peter attempting to walk on water, that's a descriptive text. So you might like hear like that Peter walked on water and think it's prescriptive, make that interpretation, and you might go out today and walk on water, but you might find yourself drowning, right? Why? Because 
when that text was given, it wasn't necessarily meant that we as Christians would all walk on water. Amen. Can I get a witness? If you can walk on water, God bless you. Right? Or you might say, well, you know, uh, I saw that David slayed a giant, so today, you know, I think I'll go look for a very tall man, and I'll tell him he's an you know, enemy of the armies of the living God, and I'll take a sling. Don't do that. Like, don't, don't steal his sword and, like, show it off in your home. Like, that's not prescriptive. It's descriptive, right? So, we must remember with this text that it is a descriptive text, and it's there for a reason. It does have to do with Israel's history, and so it's important that we cover it even though it isn't something that we necessarily like to talk about. So we're going to have four big points today, and the first one is, is that big sins begin with compromises. And so we're going to pick up the story here actually in Genesis 13. We're in Genesis 19, but we need to start in Genesis 13. And what we see is, in Genesis 13, is the beginning of Lot's compromises. So if you remember, in Genesis 12, we have Abraham and Lot in Egypt. And Abraham has just had a case of mistaken wife identity. Oh, you're my sister. (laughs) No, She's your wife, Abraham. She's your wife. And so Abraham had that whole deal, messed with Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Go back to your own country, right? So Abraham has come back. He's repented. He's worshiping the Lord, right? Lot comes back with him. Abraham and Lot are very wealthy at this point in their lives. So they have so many resources. And back then, right, animals were money, right? If you had money... You had animals, right? And so their flocks are just overflowing, and the herdsmen of Abraham are arguing with the herdsmen of Lot, right? There's too many resources. So Abraham gives Lot this choice, and this is what he says in Genesis 13. He says, then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And this is the first time we see this where Lot is mentioned and his actions are mentioned. And he lifts up his eyes, right? There are three things, right? There's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, right? And we see that this lust of the eyes is entering Lot, right? And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered like a beautiful golf course. No, it doesn't say that, okay? It doesn't say that, but that's what it looks like. Like, they have an irrigation system out there. It comes from the Lord, okay? All right? And it's well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself. Lot chose for himself. Who did he choose for? Lot chose for himself. All the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. 
So what do we see first? Is that Lot set his eyes on the Jordan Valley. He was a greedy man. And we see his greed, right? So he set his tent near Sodom. Sodom was beautiful. Sodom was bountiful. It was wealthy, trendy, exciting. It was where the action was. It was like Sin City, amen? You could go there and make some bank, right? You could roll some craps. You can go out and work and get a job, right? You know, it was 116 degrees yesterday in Sin City. I think that maybe God's judging Sin City. No, maybe not. But this is what Sodom was like, right? Right? And this is where you go to make it big. If you can make it in Sodom, you can make it anywhere. And so that's where Lot's eyes were set upon. And so he wanted to live large, and that's where he went. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that the love, of the love of money is the root of all types of evil. And so what we see with Lot is he's starting to open this window to sin, and it, comes, it starts with his greed, right? Second of all, we see that Lot is selfish. See, Abraham offers Lot the land to either the right or to the left. Now, like if you're older relative, Generally, you never do this unless, like, God's really transforming your heart. Like, you, you don't, like, give the younger sibling, like, no, you take that little plot over there. Like, I'm going to the good land. Abraham was just not operating that way, was he? He's willing to consider Lot's interest, his, his nephew's interest, more important than his own. Abraham's focus was on Lot's good and Lot's focus was on his own good, because he lifted his eyes, and what did he look at? He looked at that beautiful, enticing valley and all its cities, and he chose for himself. He didn't choose for Abraham's good. He didn't choose for his family's good. He chose for his own good, and so we see his selfishness. His selfishness and self-focus made him not focus on the good of his family and his children. So we see this just playing its way out where God, Lot's greed and selfishness really crept in to his ability to be a good parent, right? And you might say today, I'm not a parent. Like, I don't even have a spouse. Well, guess what? You do have influence. Amen? Amen? You know, I remember when Elizabeth Elliot, she's uh, gone to be with the Lord, but she was sharing one day, she said, you might not be a parent, but we can all be spiritual parents. And so as we talk a little bit about parenthood, I don't want this to be lost on everybody who's not a parent here, because we're not all parents, but we do all have influence. So what's a parent's primary job? A parent's primary job is to make disciples of their children, to help their ch children to learn to follow the Lord. And this, uh, this passage, I know John touched base on it a couple weeks ago, but it's just such a foundational passage in all the scripture. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart. It starts there, doesn't it? If you love God with all your heart, guess what? Those around you will know it and see it. And it'll have influence. It just starts there. Everybody knows what you love already, right? 
I mean, I already mentioned that I love the Minnesota Vikings, right? I, did I not mention that? Amen. Right? It, amen. All right. Some, there's other people who are forsaken too. All right. <laughs> God help us, right? Yeah, yeah. This year, this year, amen. <laughs> for 54 years, it's been this year for me. <laughs> it's all good. God loves us. Oh, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Repeat them. You know, I used to get kind of frustrated when people would repeat scripture to me. And you realize what I was doing at that time? I was memorizing scripture. I didn't even know it. Like, they keep saying this scripture back and back, and then I'm like, how do I know this scripture? I only know it because someone's repeating it. And so, parents, you might be like one of those drums. You're just beating away at that thing. Just keep beating, right? Your kids aren't listening, but they're listening. And they're even memorizing, right? And this is what they're going to share with their kids when they grow up. Amen. So repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road. And just I, I just feel like discipleship, it is intentional, but it's, intention, it's intentionally unintentional too. In other words, if you really love God, it's going to come out wherever you are. So if you're driving in the car, or you're in the backyard, right? Or you're like, you know, picking up poop. Like, how many of you guys have dogs you got to pick up poop in the backyard? I mean... That stuff can teach. I mean, I hate to say it, but like, we all got messes, right? <laughs> and we got to clean them up, and we're thankful that Jesus really cleans it up, right? <laughs> no. So wherever you are, that's where you're supposed to be. And your children, you know, they're important. And it, it, is, a, it is a holy struggle to really be intentional with your kids because there are so many things that distract, right? Your relationship with your spouse and then you have your children, and then you have your job, right? And then you have your friendships. And there's so many things, and you're trying to properly order everything. But God says to you that your job is to train up your children and to love your children, right? And he says, this is your primary job. Like, I'm being pretty clear with you here. You need to do this, right? Some of us may have had parents who never, like, really were intentional with this at all. And that can be really hard. I sat with a young man in his late 20s yesterday, and he said, you know, my dad was present. He was present in the home, and he was never present. I sat with another guy on Wednesday, and he said, my dad was never present. He said he came to one of my football games my whole high school career, and he said that was the worst football game I ever had. And it was the only football game I remember my stats from, right? And it's just so important as parents that we just value our children with our time. And what's important to them is important to us. So yesterday we did have a little Barbie purge. I don't know if you know what a Barbie purge is, but it's where all this Barbie stuff leaves your house. I don't know how much, but I saw there was like a veterinary clinic that went out of our house yesterday and some other things. So we have five daughters. 
And I have played a little bit of Barbies. I probably am not, have not been the best Barbie dad in the world. But I just want to encourage you, and this is true even for people that are single or don't have kids, like just being intentional with the people around you and just doing the things that they like to do. It just goes so far sometimes in building relationships and sharing Christ and imparting the faith. So my question to you as parents, but also as those of you who aren't parents, is are the choices you're making positioning others well to follow the Lord? Are the choices you're making positioning others to follow the Lord? I think it's just really helpful to continue to evaluate our lives in this. All right, point number two. Big sins always follow previously unconfessed sins. So big sins always follow previously unconfessed sins. We see three things here with Lot that he doesn't come clean on. First of all, Lot rejects the angel's command to flee to the mountains. The angels say, we're going to destroy the city. God's going to rain down burning sulfur, right? And Lot rejects that. Second of all, Lot acts in fear rather than in faith by fleeing from Zoar. So first, he rejects going to the mountains. Secondly, it's said that he acts in fear and not in faith when he flees Zoar, which is where he goes after Sodom is destroyed. And then finally, Lot turns to a mountain cave instead of his uncle Abraham. So he turns to a mountain cave. So let's read the text here. Pick it up in verse 18. It says, but Lot said to them, this is to the two angels, no, my lords, please, your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving, your, saving my life. This is an understatement. Like, Lot is on borrowed time here. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die, right? Notice that Lot is just setting up a fear structure here that is very improper. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of the mountains, he says, right? Who should he fear? He should fear the Lord, right? So he points at his fears, and that's where his faith goes to. It doesn't go to the fearing the Lord. It goes to the fearing the mountains, right? So he continues on. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, this is the angels, all right, I'll grant you your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. And Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he and his two daughters lived in the cave. It's just so funny. First, he's afraid to go to the mountains. Then it says he's afraid to stay in Zoar, right? So his fears are just misplaced. So what can we learn from Lot's little travels here, from his little post-Sodom destruction days? First, the, thing, the first thing we can learn is don't live in the darkness. Like, don't be in a cave, right? Much of life in dealing with sin is dealing with darkness. And we recognize that when we sin, that there's darkness in our lives. And life can get really hard 
when we have sin in our lives. So we're all sinners here, right? We're all made out of the same stuff. We're no perfect package, right? And we all have darkness to deal with. But Lot was very purposeful about pursuing a cave. God does not call us to a cave. What does he call us to? Let's look at 1 John. He says this, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And, abs- and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. This is hard stuff. I remember as a young Christian, I didn't really like the book of First John because I always felt like I couldn't measure up to walking in the light. But the beauty of this passage is God gets into this. We all struggle with walking in the light. But God is light, right? And he calls us to walk in the light. All right? Um, and yet, yet we walk in the darkness. We are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, just think about this process of walking in the light and how hard it is when we're not walking in the light, when we're living in our own sin cave, or maybe it's our own difficult spot where someone sinned against us and we're in the cave. We really don't have good fellowship, either with the Lord or with one another. And that's exactly where the devil wants to keep us. He wants to keep us in that cave just like Lot is. And to keep our sin hidden, right, and covered, and our guilt elevated, and our fears elevated. And God says, come out of the darkness into the light. I have good for you here. But it's hard to come out of the darkness into light. We sometimes fear that. But we need to learn to fear God and to recognize that God is good, and he calls us into the light and out of that dark cave of sin. So secondly, we need to come to a proper assessment of our sin. So he goes on there in 1 John, and he says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can live in denial, can't we? How many of you have committed a sin and like completely did not realize it? The rest of you guys are all liars, okay? All right? (laughs) So you're deceived. (laughs) And we're all deceived at some level, right? I mean, the psalmist even talks about, Lord, help me with my hidden sin, right? There's sometimes sins we don't even realize we're committing. Others see it. It's clear to them, but it's not clear to us. And so God is just calling us out and saying, you have sin, but don't deceive yourself, right? What does he say? Confess it. Agree with God. This is sin. This is wrong. I need to turn from this. It says, God is faithful and just. And what does it say he's ready to do? He's ready to forgive us. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's ready to forgive us. I mean, that's good news. I don't know about your world, but my world, that's good news. Because I need to be forgiven. And, you know, when Christ died for me and I put my trust in him, he died for my sins in the past, he died for my sins in the future, and he died for my sins now, right? Like, he has washed me clean. I am bound for heaven, 
But oftentimes our sin breaks our fellowship with God and with one another. So things aren't right. You know how things cannot be right with someone, right? Like there's not a settled in the soul. You look at them and you're not looking like each other in the eye because things aren't right. And I think oftentimes that's how we can be with God, where we grieve his spirit, right? And we just need to come clean. We just need to confess it and turn from it and to know that forgiveness, that unending fountain of forgiveness is there for us, right? God says, I am faithful. Who is the unfaithful one? I am. You guys are, right? He is the faithful one who's there ready to forgive us. So we need to come to a proper assessment of our sin. And then finally, we need to come to the advocate. I don't know about you guys, but... Um, the reality is, is that we all, we have this advocate named Jesus, and he's our friend. Yeah. And I, I do this mental exercise sometimes where I'm thinking, like, you know, there's a scripture in John, and it talks about, like, that we're no longer enemies, but we're friends. But did you even know that Jesus is a friend to those who aren't friends with Jesus? Like, Jesus is, he's an advocate. It says it right here. Let's read it, and then let's talk about it. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And I think about Christ. What is he doing? Christ is out there wooing us to himself. And he's saying, guess what? I got this great relationship with God the Father, right? And I'm the advocate. I have died for your sins. So come to me. Come to me. And this is a friendship that he has with Christians. And this is a wooing relationship he has with non-Christians where he is calling us. He's saying, guess what? You have sin? Guess what? I have taken that sin upon the cross. I came out of heaven, down to earth for you and for your neighbor and for your neighbor's neighbor. And I have died for that sin. And I want your life. I want that relationship. I want you to come to me and trust in me. It's not our righteousness. We ain't getting there on our own accord. We aren't getting there by our own good deeds. But Christ is perfectly righteous, and he is our friend. He is our advocate. And so we can come to him in faith, and we can be assured that we can know we have eternal life if we come to Christ in faith. We trust him. We turn to him. We follow him. I like this little mental exercise. Like there's Joel's way that goes this way, and then if I repent and I put my eyes on Jesus and I go Jesus' way, guess what? That's good news right there. That's faith, right? And what did faith require? It required taking my eyes off myself, turning, putting my eyes on Christ, and taking a step in faith, right, towards him. Christ, I'm coming. Here I come. So I just encourage you today, if you haven't made that turn, if you haven't come to Christ, to come to Christ today, but maybe you've, come, you've made that turn, but you need to make that turn again, Amen. <laughs> You need to get out of that cave today, right? And you just need to confess, come clean. You just need to be right, right? And sometimes that means turning to a sister or brother, a trusted person in the Lord, and just saying, hey, 
This has happened. I just need to confess it. I need to get out of the cave today. All right. Number three, big sins are often rationalized away. Big sins are often rationalized away. So Lot's daughter schemed. What did they scheme to do? First, what they did is they created a crisis, right? Said, ain't no man. Ain't no man out there. Does that sound like what single women say? No. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not hating on you single women today. (laughs) It's fine. There is no men sometimes. I can get a witness. I I was a single man, and I was just, Lord, I'm praying that I would not be a single man, and I would be good enough for that woman right over there. (laughs) That was my prayer life for like a year. (laughs) Lord, help me. (laughs) But these girls, they create a crisis. We know there was men in Zoar. They just came from Zoar. We know Abraham and his whole clan were still there. There was men out there. But what does Lot's daughter say? There's no man. There's no man, right? <clears throat> so what do they do? They do what the rest of us do. Hey, let's do something noble and let's attach something wicked to it, right? Hey, let's preserve the family line. What a great idea. Yeah, can't you see the two sisters brainstorming? How should we do it? Oh, Lord. I mean, it just goes dark right away. And you start saying, these are bad women. Guess what? They had a bad daddy. They had a bad mama who was salt out in the middle of a field somewhere, right? And you just look at these two young ladies and you think, they were, they were responsible for their own stuff, but they were also following two very bad parents who did not have God's purposes in mind. So what did they do? They said they attached a noble cause to continue the family line with a wicked act. And then finally, what did they use? They used alcohol. And we just realized the destructive purposes of alcohol in life. Um, When I was in college, I had a close friend I worked at Bible camp with, and her cousin got hit by a drunk driver and paralyzed for life. And so slowly, he was able to get himself to where he could drive a car, and he had one of those cars where you would... Like the accelerator was on the, like the steering post and stuff, and so he was able to be mobile, and he had a wheelchair, and then a couple of years later, he got struck by another drunk driver and got killed. And you just see the, you know, just the amount of destruction that can come on people's life from alcohol, and obviously, here we have this incestuous relationship that comes, but it's just, it's such a struggle, um, in our culture, in our lives, and it's something as we talk about coming out of the cave of darkness and into the light, it's something that Christ can deal with, that the Holy Spirit can help us with. But really, we have to be determined to deal with it. So let's, let's look at the scripture and what it says here. It says, then the firstborn said to the younger, the big sister said to the little sister, Our father is old. There is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. And you think about this story, and you're like, well, Like, Lot really isn't guilty here. He didn't even know what was going on. Like, Lot 
is the cause of all this. Like, if it wasn't for Lot making all these bad decisions, his daughters wouldn't have been in this place. They're fully responsible, but so is Lot. So let's be really clear about that. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go and sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. So, yeah, you see just this rationalization that goes on with sin. And when we sin, this is what we do in our minds. We rationalize it. And it, it's actually necessary in our minds. Sin starts right here between our ears. And this is where it was with Lot's daughters. They started in their minds, and it came out in their words, and then it came out in their lives. So not, finally, point number four is that big sins have big consequences. Big sins have big consequences. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites of today. And the younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. So what do we see? What are the consequences? Well, so as the older daughter gave birth to Moab, who became the father of the Moabites. What do we know about the Moabites? We know the Moabites were bad people and a bad influence on the Israelites, right? So the Mo- in Numbers 25, the Moabite women seduced the Jewish men, right? And they married them, and they had children with them, and, and they worshiped their god, Baal Peor, right? And it says in the scriptures in Numbers 25 that the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites because they, they were seduced by the Moabite women, but they also just gave in to that sexual temptation. And God judged the people, and all those men were killed, All those men were killed because the Lord's anger burned against them. And the Moabites always were nipping at the heels of the Israelites, God's people, all right? What else do we see? That his younger daughter gave birth to Ben-Ami, and that was the father of the Ammonites. And the Ammonites' chief god was the god Molech. And Molech, if you know about Molech, is people who worship Molech sacrifice their firstborn child to him. So you see places in Israel's history when they would sacrifice their firstborn. This is the God that they were sacrificing. And it all started here, right? With Lot and his decisions, and then with his daughters and his decisions. So what, we, what can we take away from this passage today? I think one of the first things we can take away is that our lives have a huge influence. Like we have a huge influence on other people. Um, I shared this in the first message this morning. I'll share it a little bit today. When I was a fifth grader, our family moved from Michigan to Nebraska. And um, I started school at Northeast Elementary School, rolled my dirt bike down the hill. And it's always easier going to school than coming back because you had to come back up that hill. My teacher was Mr. Haas. And Mr. Haas was a coach and really into sports and he often would take a lot of us kids to games, and I remember going to watch the Carney Bearcats play, you know, different Norfolk or Lincoln or whoever, and I became a bat boy on his uh, high school baseball team and the manager for the eighth grade football team. I did a lot of things with Mr. Haas. And then when I was 35, 
it dawned on me that my teacher, Mr. Haas, who had a big influence on my life, was a sexual predator. And that he had been abusing boys. And I remember going to this seminar and listening and thinking, uh-oh. And God was really gracious to me in my life that he spared me from being abused. But eight years ago, he was put in the state penitentiary in, in Nebraska. And um, why do I bring this up today? I think one of the reasons I bring it up today is because some of us have experienced that trauma. And maybe today you're living in a cave of darkness because of what's happened to you. And God does not want us to be in that spot where we're um, dealing with abuse alone. God wants to help us. And obviously, we talked earlier about having an advocate Christ. But we also need other people that can come alongside us, that can hear our pain and our story, and that can support us and love us in and through that. So I just want you to hear that. But I also think back to my you know, fifth grade teacher, Mr. Haas, and I think, I don't know what led him to all those decisions, but I know he's a man that needs Christ. And there was probably decisions that he made that led to him abusing all those young men over the years. And so I think in our lives, we just need to be quick to confess and to repent. Like, Life goes by quickly, and so indecision leads to another. And when we're not intentional about confessing and repenting and turning from things, sin runs fast, and it could take over our lives. But guess who runs faster? Jesus does. Amen? And there's hope today. I just want to remind you that there's hope in the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, he died for every sin. Not just the good, fancy sins, but he died for the heinous sins, right? He died for you and for me, and the cross is real, where Christ came out of heaven, and he came for us. He came on that great rescue mission. And I just say, today, if you're in a dark cave, and you don't know how to get out, you need to cry out to the Lord today, and you need to ask him for help. And because Jesus died on that cross and rose from the grave, you can know that there is hope for you today. Why? Because the one who conquered sin and death can conquer anything in your life. And he can get you to heaven, right? He can write your name in the book of life, right? Right? But you need to come to him and trust him. And it just starts with that little turn where you set your eyes not on that plain of the Jordan Valley, but you set your eyes on Christ and you trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks this day. We give thanks for your goodness. Lord, we give thanks that we can turn to you in faith. Lord, and we can be forgiven, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. We just acknowledge that our sin deserves judgment and separation in hell. Lord, but you, because of what you have done, Lord, you have brought heaven to us, Lord, and we just need to trust you by faith, to follow you by faith, Lord, to turn from our sin. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.